Hello, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I'm excited you are here today for our next installment on our series on David. I want to introduce a uh, new member to our staff team, and this is Shane Seegers with his wife, Janelle. Shane is coming on board to help uh, uh, direct our multi-site efforts. He'll be the director of our multi-site uh, extensions here. We've got extensions going on in <clears throat> Cloverdale and in Pike Road and Wetumpka right now, and we hope to start up many more. And Shane's going to figure all that out. So anyway, glad you're here. Uh, no, uh, people have been asking me as we've been expanding, hey, how is that all going to work? And I go, how do you have time to pastor all the pastors? And I, I don't. So we added Shane here, and he is a gifted discipler and a gifted teacher, and you're going to get to know him. I wanted to put this on video so all the sites could meet him as well and uh, via video. So Shane, we're glad you're here. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, please introduce us to the rest of your family. Okay. Well, this is my wife, Janelle. We've been married for 20 years. And uh, we have four boys, and uh, two of them are here today, but they are around. Uh, so, but you can see them on the screen because our oldest will be a freshman at the University of Alabama. He's still uh, with some friends in Missouri, where we just moved from. My second son, Riley, will be a junior, uh, and Ben will be an eighth grader at Baldwin, and Cade, our little one, will be seven or is seven. He'll be a second grader. So. That's great. And um, we are excited that Shane's a part of the team here. And again, the folks at the sites, you'll see Shane around. Uh, he's a very wise and has, brings a lot of wisdom and a lot of great strength to our staff team and spiritual leadership. And Shane, I'd love for you to pray for uh, the time I have to teach today, if you don't mind. Okay, yeah, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be uh, a part of Centerpoint. God, what you're doing in and through this church. Uh, God, I pray that you would stir in all of our hearts uh, the vision that you have for us, uh, not just at Centerpoint, but as your children, to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples everywhere we go. And God, that we might see this world know you. And uh, God, that starts with each and every one of us, not just sight pastors, but all of us making disciples. And God, I pray today that you would speak through John, that God, we would hear a heart on what it means to truly worship you, to place you at the center of our lives, not to keep you as a, as a, a good luck charm or uh, just think of what we can get from you, but God, that we would uh, put you at the center of our heart and follow you completely. And so, God, would you capture our hearts with that today? Because we know when we put you at the center of our lives and we follow you in, our per in your purposes for us, that God will see life the way it's meant to live and you'll be glorified. So we ask that you do this in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One more round of applause for Shane if we can. Um, <clears throat> And again, I am so excited that you are here. We are continuing on in our series entitled David, a Man After God's Own Heart. And today we're going to look at another story. Uh, we're using the month of July, the Sundays in July, and then half of August to, uh, to reflect on some stories, some episodes from David's life so that we can understand uh, why he was called a man after God's own heart. And one of the reasons why is because he practiced joyful obedience. And so in your bulletin today is an outline entitled David and the Ark, and the whole notion of joyful obedience. If you need a pen to fill in the blanks, just raise your hand, and one of our ushers will be glad to bring one to you. And some of you are already thinking, John, it was Noah and the ark, not David. Well, different guy, different ark, okay? The word ark means box. Noah's ark was a big box. The ark that David was involved with was the box that contained, it was the chest, the golden chest, that contained the tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments written on them. That Moses had received those commandments and he had re and received instructions 
on how to transport them and where to keep them. And God said, these commands I give you, and I'm writing on these stone tablets, I want you to keep them in a sacred chest, an ark, an ark of the covenant. It's a covenant between me and the Jewish people. So that's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the box that contains the contract between God and the Hebrew people. He had told them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are the terms of our relationship. So point one on your, before we get to point one, there's a note at the top of your outline that says this, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the special relationship between God and the Jewish people, his people. I'll be your God, you be my people. Inside the box are the terms. All you have to do is keep the Ten Commandments forever without breaking any of them, and we're cool. Now, if you do break these commandments, then he also gave Moses, on that account, he gave them a sacrificial system where an animal could die as a substitute for a year. It wasn't a one-to-one replacement, but the wages of sin is death, because God is sinless, and he's the giver of life, and he said, if you're going to sin against me, then something has to die. If I want a relationship with you, I can't kill you, but you're going to have to take the best of your herd, one of the prized animals of your herd, and it will have to die in your place. And so every year, these sacrifices are repeated over and over again, and people always long for the day when that could be finished. Well, this is all significant in the life of David, because when David became king, he established Jerusalem as the capital city, the city of David. And that would be his capital city, and he wanted everybody to know that though he was king, he worshiped God, and God was the king of kings. When Israel had come out of Egypt, God led them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, and as they went, God had told them, I want you to worship me, and I want you to set up a portable temple, a tent temple called the tabernacle. And at that tabernacle, you will offer sacrifices. In the middle of the tent, there will be, you put it in different sections. I want you to have one section where this ark is kept, this chest with the Ten Commandments, and that will be the most holy place. And once a year, the priest can come in there and offer sacrifices, blood atonement, and say prayers and ask for forgiveness for the people. And so wherever they went, the tabernacle was put up. The way they knew where to go was there was a pillar of cloud that would guide them during the day, a pillar of fire by night, and when it stopped, they stopped. When it moved, they moved. And whenever it stopped, that's where they would build the tabernacle right under it. They'd set the tabernacle right under it, and right under the cloud is where they would put the Holy of Holies. God's presence was right on top of the chest. Now, when David became king... He said, you know, I want it to be that way again. I want people to remember <clears throat> that God is in the center of his people. The tabernacle we set up first, and the rest of the camp would pitch their tents around it. So symbolically and literally, God was in the middle of the camp. And David said, I want to get that back. That hadn't been the way under Saul. Saul wasn't interested in that. He was Israel's first king. Uh, he'd been interested in glorifying himself. And David said, I want to make sure I glorify God. So we're going to pitch a tent in the middle of Jerusalem and put the ark in that. And just like in the old days, God's going to be in the center of everything we do. Now, here's a little bit more about the ark, and this will make the story make even more sense, hopefully. Exodus 25, uh, God is giving instructions to Moses on how to make the lid on top of the ark. God is speaking, and he tells Moses, Make the ark's cover the place of atonement from pure gold. 
It must be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim, those are angels, from hammered gold, and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. When the priest would come in, the high priest would come in once a year on the Day of Atonement and offer prayers on behalf of the people. He would sprinkle blood on the lid of the ark and on the sides of the ark from an animal that had been slaughtered. And that was where he made atonement. And the animal died on behalf of the people. And so, uh, and that was the place then where God told them this is where he would meet them. And when they were to say prayers to him in that sacred room, they were to face the lid of the ark. In fact, he goes on to say, the cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover with their wings spread above it. They will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark, on, on top of the ark, on top of the box. I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Moses had a special relationship of all the Hebrews. <clears throat> he was able to talk to God out loud and have God answer him out loud. He couldn't see God, but God said, when you get this ark built and you put this cover on it, have the angels face each other with wings extended forward on both sides of the lid, and then right where their wings almost touch, that's where I want you to face, and I'll talk to you from there. Later on, the priests came in, and when they said the prayers, that's where they were to face. So this became known, that lid became known as the place of God's presence where you could experience his mercy, the mercy seat. And that's where that name comes from. Well, whenever the camp moved, when the cloud moved, the camp would pick up and they would move the ark. So now David wants to bring it back, and you go, well, where was it? Well, in the time of David... It wasn't located in any uh, particularly meaningful place. What had happened was, many years before, worship had degenerated into a terrible thing. The prophet Samuel, the guy who anointed David to become the king of Israel, when he was just a boy, uh, he was serving in the temple under a man named Eli. And Eli had two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who didn't care much for God and exploited their position as priests they would steal some of the sacrifices that came in. They would, have, they would sleep with young women at the tabernacle, and they turned it into a place that people didn't want to go because it was a place of corruption and immorality, and so people didn't even bother coming, and they made God very angry. Then one day they did the unthinkable. They turned the ark into a good luck charm. The nation of Israel had gone out into battle against the Philistines. They were still fighting over land, um, and... The Philistines won the battle. And the Israelites came back licking their wounds. And they said, why did we lose? How come God wasn't for us? And they said, well, God's not on our side. And this tells you how far the uh, religion had diminished and how corrupt it had become. He wasn't on our side. We need to get him engaged in the battle. And here's how we do it. We carry the ark into battle. Well, how would that work? Well, remember he told Moses that I'll speak to you from the place where the angel's wings almost touch on, top, on the lid on top of the ark. Well, that's where God sits. That's the mercy seat. So if we carry the seat, he has to go along with it. Like God's a doddering old senile grandpa in a wheelchair. And if we wheel him into the battle, he'll have to be there. And that'll make us win. So they carried the ark into the battle, and they got slaughtered. And the Philistines killed the priests who were carrying it, and they carried off the ark, and they put it in one of their temples. 
The bad news for them was God didn't want them to take, him, take it as an idol or a trophy either. And so when they carried it into their city, soon the whole city became infested with rats that apparently carried fleas, that carried the bubonic plague, because it says they, people started falling over dead from tumors. And so they got the ark out of the first city and moved it to another city in Philistia, and then the people all started to die there because their city got infested with rats. And the third city they came to, they said, you're putting the ark back. You're not bringing it into our city. And so they sent the ark back on an ox cart, and they got it back into Israelite territory, and it stayed at the home of a man named Abinadab for many years. Saul had no desire to bring it back because he was too busy trying to kill David. He was jealous of him. We've talked about that the last few weeks. But now David, by the time we get to the story today, David has become king, established his kingdom, secured the borders with about 30,000 troops. There's one thing left. He just has to bring the ark to Jerusalem and then everything will be done. Point one. And you go, John, we're going to be here all day. No, I promise you this really moves. You needed the backstory to get what's happening here. David's first attempt to move the ark to Jerusalem met with disaster. He's going to try to move it twice. You'll see today, and this is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David had established his throne, was going to bring in the ark. We're jumping right in, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all, to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now you understand what that means. And so they placed the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were dancing. They were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments. This is a big parade. Think Fourth of July parade in a small town. Fire trucks, you know, people throwing confetti, all this stuff. It's that kind of thing. They're all just dancing. This is a big deal. We're going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. We're going to restore things just the way it was in the time of Moses when God was blessing us. Hallelujah. It's going to be a big party. And then everything took a bad turn. David and all the people were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs, playing all kinds of musical instruments. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, the guy who was driving the cart, he reached out his hand and he steadied the ark of God. Because the ark was top-heavy, had those angels on top, and it was wobbling, about to fall over. He reached over to, to keep it from falling over. And then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of, of God, and David was angry. Please circle that. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah as it still is called today. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. How'd you like to be that Obed-Edom guy? Hey, can we keep his ark here? Yeah, sure, why? Well, I killed the last guy who touched it. Hey, don't touch it, by the way, okay? I mean, let's keep it here. And David said, I can't move it into Jerusalem. So 30,000 troops, big parade, horns blaring, music playing. We're going to have a big festival, bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Borders are secure. God has blessed me. Uzzah dies. Ooh, and everybody's terrified. And David's mad. I mean, what the heck? 
trying to move this thing, this ark to Jerusalem to let everybody know that God takes first place. And Uzzah just tries to steady it and he falls over dead for touching it. Well, it's important to note that Uzzah died because David didn't do his homework. David didn't do his homework on how to move the ark. God had given instructions not only on how the ark was to be built, but on how the ark was to be moved. In fact, in Numbers chapter 4, we find God giving these instructions. When the camp moves, Aaron, that was Moses' brother, God is speaking to Moses again. When the camp moves, Aaron and his sons must enter the tabernacle first to take down the inner curtain and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. Then they must put the carrying poles of the Ark in place. And so what happened was the Ark had a golden lid. It also had rings attached to the four corners where it had legs to stand on, and there were carrying poles made of acacia wood. God instructed them, this is the way I want it moved. A little more on that. It says the Kohathites will come and carry these things to the next destination. The Levites were to assist the priests in worship. There were three clans within the Levites. The Kohathites are one of them, one of those clans. They were in charge of moving things, of moving the ark and other sacred things. That was their official job. Think two Levites in a truck, okay, that type of thing. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, so the Kohathites will come, carry these things to the next destination, but they must not touch the sacred objects or they will die. And God had said that. And you go, well, now what? Why was God saying to Moses, don't touch the sacred objects or they'll die? Well, again, we can read this and go, that seems really harsh. That doesn't make sense. But we forget the context in which all this happened. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. The Egyptians had lots of gods and lots of idols, and they had lots of talismans and omens and lucky charms. And they would go to these idols and these talismans and they would rub them and say magic phrases and they used potions and all these things because if you rub the lucky talisman, then you get what you want. Then you get the God to do what you want. You've got to say the magic incantation and then he gives you what you need. And God said, I'm rescuing you from this. And he had told them in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make an image of me and bow down to that image. I am not a cow. I am not the moon or the sun. I am the one who made you. I'm not, don't make me in the image of a man or any created thing. Worship me and me alone. And he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. These are the terms of our agreement so we can have a relationship. I'll be your God. You be my people. Do not treat me the way the Egyptians treat their gods. The ark is not a lucky charm. You cannot rub it and get good luck. In fact, if you touch it, you will die. Because sin is deadly serious. And I don't want you to ever forget this. And so the commandments seem harsh. God was trying to set a very clear boundary between himself and the false gods people had worshipped in Egypt. And David had forgotten that. Which is really interesting because that was why the ark had been captured and gone to Philistia anyways, because the priests had forgotten that. And they thought it was a lucky charm. You carry it into battle, you win. There's a life application for you and me out of all of this. We must not grow careless about obeying God. We must not take God for granted. You could put or treat him as a lucky charm. 
Well, John, how do people do that today? Oh, I don't know. Hey, I'll go to church and then God has to give me promotion. Hey, I'll give some money to charity and then I'll get the girl or I'll get the guy. Or you put it on the flip side, and I can't tell you how many times people have literally come in with this complaint to me. I started a business, and then in 2007 and 2008, everything went belly up, and I'd been going to church for 20 years. How do you explain that? I'm not going to church anymore because it didn't work. Oh, so the reason you go to church is that way if you go to church enough times, God gives you the business success you're looking for? That's what this amounts to? Well, yeah. By the way, how many times do I got to go to church so I don't go to hell? How many times do I got to go to church to get the marriage I want? How many times do I got to go to church to be rich and famous? How many times? And if that's what you think we're selling here, you're at the wrong shop. The Bible doesn't talk about God that way, and God didn't want to talk about himself that way. And he made it very clear to Moses, don't talk about me that way. I'm real. I want a relationship with you. And so instead of an idol, I want us to have a contract, a covenant. You keep the hard copies made of stone. Well, they were very hard copies. Okay. Made of stone in the sacred chest. They're made of stone because the stone can last forever. These commandments last forever. And the only thing people grieved of was would there ever be a permanent sacrifice could come because he kept failing at it. Jesus was that permanent sacrifice, by the way. But it still applies to us, the lesson that David learned. We can't be careless about this. I mean, do you know I also meet people all the time, and they go, well, I met somebody beautiful, and if I fall in love with her, then I ought to marry her. Or met a handsome guy, I fell in love with him, I ought to marry him. Never once even check, well, what does God say about marriage? Never once. Hey, I got a chance to take this job, I'll make a lot of money. But I'll never even once look up what the scripture has to say about my duties as a husband and a father or about a wife and a mother. And then all of a sudden, four or five years later, boy, we're in a terrible mess. We go, where are you, God? Look, I made this decision because I could get more money. Look, I made this decision because somebody was beautiful. Look, I made this decision because I thought it'd be fun. And then later on, four years later, oh, God, come bless my mess. I didn't even bother to consult you for one second before I jumped in with both feet. Now, here's the irony of the whole thing. David was moving the ark to Jerusalem because he wanted everybody to know that God was at the center of Jerusalem's government, of his government. There's only one problem. The only one person he forgot to consult about the thing was God. Make sure you and I learn from that. Hey, if you're about to make a big decision this week or this month, make sure you pray about it and get some godly counsel before you do it. Don't just jump in and say, well, I'm sure it'll be good. I mean, what could be wrong with making more money? Well, a lot of things are wrong reasons for making money, or it's going to pull your family apart. We can learn from this, and we must not take God for granted and become careless about obeying him. His word has a lot to say about our motivations on a lot of things. Moses talked about this in his final sermon to the Israelites before they got into the promised land. This is from Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? The Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord. That's reverence and respect there, by the way. And that you live in a way that pleases him and that you love him and that you serve him with all your heart and soul. You must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. 
David learned from this. He learned how important obedience was. Not just to have the impression that God was at the center of the government, but that God really was at the center. I wish I would have thought about this, you know, earlier this morning it struck me and uh, as I've been presenting this, I, love, I would have loved for you to have heard from some of our elders. We have stopped elders meetings at this church right in the middle of the meeting. We've come to a point we don't know what to do. We'll stop and pray right then. And all of them can tell you how God has led us to hiring key staff people. God has led us to key decisions amazingly. Things that we didn't set out originally to do. And I want you to know this. This church is, we're going to do our very best to follow the Lord on every step. Because we want to keep him first. Not just say we're centering lives on Christ, but to really center our own lives on Christ. Well, that brings us to point two. David learned his lesson, and then when he, he obeyed God's instructions, the second time he was able to joyfully, please circle the word joyfully, bring the ark to Jerusalem. The King, king David was told, this is back to 2 Samuel 6, King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. We find out a little bit more if you flip your outline, if you open it up from 1 Chronicles chapter 15, there's more details here. But what was incredible was is Obed-Edom, they'd parked the ark at his house and David was going, I don't know, we're going home. So 30,000 troops had gathered, Uzzah dies, all the horns stop blowing, and everybody goes home and says, oh, this is terrible. I don't know how we're ever going to get the thing to Jerusalem. So the ark stays there a few months, and everything in Obed-Edom's house is being blessed. And somebody says, David, the ark wasn't the problem. You were the problem. You didn't do your homework. And we know that because of what's written here in 1 Chronicles 15. So David prepared a place for the ark of God right in the middle of Jerusalem, just like we talked about, and he set up a special tent for it. And then he commanded, no one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to serve him forever. Because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. So the priests and the Levites purified themselves in order to bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to Jerusalem. Then the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with its carrying poles, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. And they met with success. But here's even a little more detail back to 2 Samuel 6. After the men who were carrying the ark of God had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. They took it out for a little test drive. <laughs> okay, At Obed-Edom's house, the last time anybody's moved the thing, somebody died. So now they get the carrying poles. They got everybody purified. They got the Kohathites. They got it on their shoulder. And they go, y'all ready? Yeah. Let's try it out. How'd you like to be in one of those guys? One, two, and they go like six steps. Nobody's dead. And they go, okay, set it down. We're going to have a celebration. Seriously. David said, we're going to have a celebration. Now we're doing it the right way. Now let's have a celebration. This is what I wanted the first time. And it is a wonderful thing to be freed up for, and to have the joy that comes with obedience. In fact, that's a life application for you and me. God wants us to experience the freedom and joy that come from obeying his commands. Can I tell you one of the greatest things I love is doing a wedding for a young couple where they have saved themselves for each other and they are 
it's a godly young man, a godly young woman, and they have thought through what it means to be married, and they've prayed about every step, and you go to the rehearsal dinner, it's kind of like a little revival meeting. People are talking about what a great Christian the gal is, what a great Christian the young man is, and they, everybody prays for him and all these things, and it's just marvelous. And then you go to the wedding, and it's a big celebration, and everybody's throwing converted rice at him on the way out of the door and other things like this. It's great stuff. You celebrate, and you go, oh, it's wonderful. God wants that in every part of our lives. What if every part of my life I had said, God, is there anything? Am I doing something wrong here? I'm not getting along with my coworkers. God, do I have a bad attitude? And then if he shows me something, I go, "Mm, yeah, I need to fix that. And then I fix that. Well, now I can go to work with joyful expectation because God, I'm doing my part. I'm counting on you to work in and through me and with my coworkers and make this a wonderful place to work. What if work became a place of joyful obedience? What if my family became a place of joyful obedience instead of filled with tension and fighting because the husband and wife are selfish and angry and won't resolve conflict? What if now they were resolving it God's way? Wow. Now going home was an act of joyful obedience. For David, when he figured out what God wanted him to do, when he listened to God's word and he knew he was doing everything rightly, let's dance. Joyful obedience. And that's such a far cry from how most of us look at obedience. Obedience, oh my goodness, it's terrible. That's not the way David spoke about it. Psalm 119, David wrote these these words, I will keep on obeying your instructions forever and ever. I will walk in freedom. Would you circle freedom, please? For how I have devoted myself to your commandments, how I delight, circle the word delight, in your commands, how I love them. I mean, David loved the commands. In fact, when he found out he wasn't moving the ark the right way, it grieved him. He had been responsible for Uzzah's death. He was the leader of the people. He was trying to let every nation know that the ark would be in the middle of the capital city so everybody would understand that God was in the middle of their government, that though he was king, he was worshiping the king of kings, and the one person he forgot to consult before he moved the ark was the king of kings. But now he learned, and he got it right, and it was joyful obedience. Now there's no more problems. Everything's right between me and God. I can go his way, and I know his way is always right. He was the one who had rescued David from the giant. He was the one who had rescued David from Saul, and he was the one who had put David in power, and things are going to be awesome. All I got to do is follow God's ways. You are truly my disciples, Jesus said, if you keep obeying my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will... Somebody finish it for me. Circle free. Oh, you obey Jesus' commandments. Jesus is a cosmic killjoy. Christians just want to take away all your fun on Saturday night. Christians don't ever watch any of the good movies. Christians can't do what everybody else is doing. Christians just saying no, no, no all the time. Don't you know that real life comes when we spend more than we make? Don't you know that real life comes when we eat too much, drink too much, party too much? Don't you know that that's when all the good things happen in our lives, when we let our anger fly off the handle, when we give in to whatever whim and desire we have? There's never any problems then. And other Christians are trying to keep you from all that good fun. Unless you take God's point of view and say, that's stupid. I've given you these commandments for your own good. And Moses is saying, what does the Lord require of you? Well, obey his commandments. Love him with your whole heart. 
And David said, that's why I delight in your commands. Lord, your, plan, your ways are better than mine. Acts 3. So now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment. You can circle refreshment come from the presence of the Lord. I was talking to somebody not that long ago. They had come to Christ, and it was so amazing. They had turned, away, turned so many things in their lives over to the Lord, their life over to the Lord, and they'd become a whole new person. And they were sitting down talking to me with their spouse, the guy with his wife, and saying, I'm, I was such a selfish jerk before. And his wife goes, amen, keep talking, okay? You were just terrible. And he goes, no, it's true. I was just terrible. I did all these things wrong. And now I know how God wants me to be. I don't even know what I was thinking before. And you know what people tell me that? They, they come in and they tell me, you got to say this stuff loud, John. You got to teach this because people are, they're going the wrong way. I go, I know. We got to tell them. God loves them. This is just freeing them up for joyful obedience. And when David discovered he was doing something the wrong way, whatever it took, get that right, and now we can do what God wants. His way, his time, because he's God and I'm not. I'm going to follow him. You go, wow, John, that's a great story. There's more. No, there's not more. There's more. I promise you. The story gets even more interesting. Point three. As David danced before the Lord, his wife Michael looked down on him with contempt. The ark made it all the way to Jerusalem. Nobody died. Fire engine horns are blowing. Eh, eh, eh. Eh, tambourines, horns, everybody's shouting, confetti, that type of thing. The ark's coming in. David is dancing before the ark. He's so happy. We're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Yeah. Giving high fives to people. Spinning around. He's getting hot. Takes off his royal robes. He's just dancing in his t-shirt, in his tunic. He's dancing before the Lord. And his wife looks down and goes, well, how do you like that? Here's what the Bible has to say about it. David and the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But the ark of the Lord, as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, please underline daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. And when David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, please underline daughter of Saul. <laughs> okay, whatever it has, a description of something like that in two sentences, it wasn't because they forgot they wrote that. That's a point of emphasis. Okay, you need to know she was the daughter of Saul. Okay. She came out to meet David, and she said in disgust, Oh, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. And David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all of his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord, parenthesis, not you. David had replaced Saul as king because Saul didn't care about pleasing the Lord. Saul only cared about the applause of people. That's why he wanted to kill David. Because David had the applause of the people. Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And Saul got so jealous he wanted to kill him. And David said, I'm not like your father. I'm not dancing for you. I'm dancing before the Lord. I don't care what anybody thinks. 
Yes, and I'm willing to even look more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned, they'll indeed think I'm distinguished. Not because I'm such a good dancer, but because they can see me dancing before the Lord. It's important to note here, Michael, the daughter of Saul, just like her father, was concerned with appearances. But David was concerned with worshiping God. When you and I have examined our hearts and our hearts are right, then we are free to come and truly worship God. This should be a time of great celebration and joy. I hope that when you come to any of our worship events, whether it's a night of praise tonight or whether it's a worship service right now, that you're coming and you're saying, I want to sing to God, not for anybody else. Paul wrote about this to the Galatians. In fact, that's the last life application you outlined. You and I must value God's approval, God's approval more than the approval of anybody else. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Paul asks a rhetorical question, but it's a legitimate question. Am I trying to please God or win the approval of men? And that can happen even at a Sunday morning worship service. It can happen anywhere. Hey, why are you going to church? Well, I want to be seen going to church. You want to be seen going to church? Yeah, I want people to think I'm religious. You're not religious. You don't even know God. Yeah, but they don't know that. Carry around my Bible. You ever read it? No, but it looks good when I carry one. It's a great accessory, don't you think? It really sets off my eye. That's not the point. This isn't an accessory. This is a necessity. And if you and I want to worship God, God says, I'm worshiping you with your whole heart. What are you doing playing at this? I mean, think how wrongly people had everything. Hophni and Phinehas thought the ark was a good luck charm, and if they brought it into battle, then it would give them victory. That God was somehow stuck on the lid, and they could drag him into their conflict. David wanted to honor God, and he brought the ark back, but he never consulted God on how to do it. Didn't take time to read God's word on it. When he finally got it right, he was able to worship with all of his heart, and then Michael goes and throws cold water on the whole thing, because he said, I don't like the way you're doing that, and I think you look stupid, or look foolish. I'll never forget uh, a few years ago when our boys were small, smaller, we were on vacation, and it's our habit when we're on vacation to go visit a church in the area wherever we're vacationing. For the beach, we find a beach church, and the mountain, we find a mountain church, whatever, and we'd gone to this church, and they had a closing song that was uh, an old hymn that I, in the church where I grew up, they sang it all the time, and I knew it by heart, and so I was singing, and my eyes closed, and other things, and when the song ended, I opened my eyes, and my boys had moved over about three spaces. <laughs> We got in the car and I go, what was up with that? They go, well, Dad, you were singing so loud. Yeah, they're over there going, he's a visitor. I don't know who he is. Yeah, they're all huddled over there. You know what I reminded them? I wasn't singing to you. And they went, good. But anyway, I wasn't singing to them. Somebody had honked their horn at me the other day. I was singing along to one of my favorite Christian songs, uh, CD in my car. There's a light and there's a chorus there and I was just singing and they honk. Oh, I was just lost in the song. Do you know that God wants that? David was a man after God's own heart because you know what he wanted more than anything else? He wanted joyful obedience. I love your word. It shows me how to live. You're the one who made me You're the one who rescues me. You provided everything I have. How could I do anything better than follow you? 
I mean, what, was that, what would happen if that was my attitude, if that was yours? That's why we need to know the story of David and the ark, because God wants to free us for joyful obedience. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I just pray that you would... I pray, Lord, you've challenged each one of us to joyful obedience today. God, I pray that when we come to a worship service, we'll sing with pure hearts and right attitudes, not to be seen, not to show off. I pray that we won't come to any worship service ever at center point to show off the latest fashion or our new cell phone. I pray, Lord, we come here because we want to be with you. I pray, Lord, we'd sing because we love you and we'd listen because you're speaking to us. Nothing else. Lord, I want to be a real, genuine Christian. I want to be a person after your, home, after your own heart, just like David. If that's a desire of your heart, would you pray that today? We pray these things together. And then-